From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. If you're going to make a list of the Catholic Church's problems today, maybe the word clericalism would be high on your list. We toss that word around a lot, but what is it exactly? The Association of U.S. Catholic Priests defines it this way. Clericalism is an expectation leading to abuses of power that ordained ministers are better than and should be over everyone else among the people of God. Maybe that description brings experiences you've had right to the front of your mind. If you've spent a lot of time in different Catholic environments, you've probably encountered clericalism at one point or another. But in a compelling new paper in the academic journal Theological Studies, the eminent Jesuit moral theologian Father James Keenan says focusing on clericalism is missing a larger root problem. He writes that we should turn our attention to what he calls hierarchicalism, which he says is the father of clericalism. Whereas clericalism concerns the power and culture of individual priests, hierarchicalism is about the culture of bishops, archbishops, and cardinals. This is where we should concentrate reform efforts, Father Keenan argues. I asked him recently about his paper and why he thinks this shift of thinking is so important. His argument will invite you to think critically about how our church is structured and ways we might work together to renew our gospel mission. I also asked Father Keenan about Russia's war on Ukraine from his perspective as someone who studies the Catholic social justice tradition. We spoke a couple of weeks ago and things have been changing every day in Ukraine, but his central points are still certainly applicable. Father Keenan has been a professor of theological ethics at Boston College for over 20 years, and he also serves as the university's vice provost for global engagement and the director of the Jesuit Institute. He has an upcoming book called A Brief History of Catholic Ethics, which I asked him about at the end of our conversation. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Well, Father Jim Keenan, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk. How are you? I'm fine, Mike. Thank you. I'm very good. Um, so I'm excited to ask you about a recent uh, essay you've written, but uh, before we do that, maybe you could just introduce yourself uh, for our listeners or folks who might not be uh, familiar with your work. Um, so I'm Jim Keenan. I uh, teach at Boston College uh, Theological Ethics. I teach a course on HIV, AIDS, and ethics to undergraduates. Uh, but to graduates, I do a lot on the history of theological ethics, um, and I do a lot on virtue ethics. I'm also the Vice Provost for Global Engagement and the Director of the Jesuit Institute here at Boston College. So if you do each of those things six hours a day and then sleep for six hours a day, that's a full 24 a full hours. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 full. <laughs> so I appreciate you're taking some time out of your schedule uh, to talk. So how, um, how did you come to the society? What is your vocation story? Um, I entered at 17 in 1970, so I'm 50 years, more than 50 years in. Um, I was a high school student on Long Island at a, a brand new high school. Uh, the Diocese of Rockville Center opened up four uh, diocesan high schools, all in 1965. These were enormous schools with 550 students per class. 
Um, and we were the furthest ones out on Long Island. I had been raised in Brooklyn, but in my eighth grade, we moved to Long Island. I was the oldest of five. And um, in that school, I helped founded the uh, Christian Life Communities, uh, uh, the, the old confraternity um, in my school. And we did a, a reading clinic in, in a neighboring uh, poor uh, school district. And I became known uh, for my leadership there in a high school, and I was incorporated into the Christian Life Communities National Convention. I got elected there to be the high school representative, and I got to know the whole Jesuit network through that. Um, that was my exposure to the Society of Jesus. I was interested in becoming a religious order priest, and uh, the more Jesuits I met, the more I was attracted to the order. Excellent. Um, and, and still going. Uh... Yeah. These years later, uh, I'm curious uh, to start by asking you about this this article you've just written, which is uh, what prompted our conversation. Now it just came out in uh, an issue of Theological Studies, and the the name of the the, art, the title of the article is Hierarchicalism. Uh, I think your introduction of coining of a new phrase or new word term you've used before, but this is kind of, I guess, the first time in article form you've given a, a deep treatment. Uh, if you were on the elevator with someone and was asking you what that meant, uh, how, what is your kind of short definition of, of the word hierarchicalism? I would say most people know the word clericalism, and that's about the difference between a priest who works in service to his congregation versus a uh, somebody who is really interested in adulation, um, power, authority, not primarily service, that would be clericalism. Clericalism conjures up a notion of vice among the priest. I'd say that there is a vicious culture also among the hierarchy, whence I would call it hierarchicalism. It's a parallel to clericalism, but it's not, it's actually what I argue, it's what generates clericalism. So in, you could make a distinction in terms of separating, if, you, if clericalism were to, for ordained priests, then hierarchicalism would apply more to, to bishops in this case. So you're making, yeah. a, you're making that distinction. Exactly. And because I think they're separate cultures. What do you, how are they separate cultures? I think when you're trained to become a bishop, and, and, and this is when you're uh, uh, somebody studying, normally you're sent to Rome, you live in one of the major Roman colleges, um, and you are with a cohort of people who are not connected to the regional diocese, where most of those who are formed to be priests actually go, they go to their own regional or diocesan seminaries. Those who are going to become bishops are mostly trained in Rome in groups of people who have a sense of real power, authority, interconnectedness. Their formation is quite different. Now, your, your piece, you're not saying that uh, we, you know, we should get rid of any sense of hierarchy altogether in Catholicism. It, it, you're talking about a particular, what happens when it becomes an ism, right. I guess. I, just as I'm, not, I'm certainly not against cler clergy, but I am against clericalism. I'm not against hierarchy, but I'm against uh, hierarchicalism. I'm against a vicious culture that can breed, that's toxic, that can happen when people lose track of what their actual vocation is. The word vicious comes up in the piece a lot of times. It seems like you're using it in a technical sense. Is, is that a, a common term in theological ethics? Or yes, it's, it just means vice. 
there's, it could be virtuous. I think that when Pope Francis talks about servant priesthood or servant uh, leadership, he's talking about a virtuous context for clergy and for hierarchy. Um, I'm trying to emphasize vice, and we call it vicious. Sometimes people think of vicious as meaning, oh, they're really ruthless, they're really this, they're... But what, basically, the root of that is that they're engaged in vice, and that's what I'm trying to emphasize. So what are some examples of vice within a hierarchical culture uh, that you were trying to uh, enumerate in the, in the piece, things that have caught your attention? Well, the big thing is the big difference between clericalism and hierarchicalism is power. If, if you're a priest and you've been um, delated or denounced or that somehow somebody has made accusations against you, um, there's an ambit of re uh, recourse that you have that's basically available to any human being. Um, but if you're a hierarchy, you, you're already in a network that has um, ways of protecting you. Um, there are ways that the Vatican has protected, but Archbishop Shakluna, who's been an enormous, uh, has had an enormous role in the sexual abuse uh, scandal in remedying some of the problems we have, has actually worked to ref uh, on reforms that um, were, uh, to remove those capabilities that high or options that hierarchy had to protect themselves from any charges. Um, that they were able to sequester uh, information or that they were able to hide behind, say, um, a secret or some other device. So one of the things is that when you think of hierarchicalism, you see that we've been through this scandal now for almost 40 years. And yet it's just now that hierarchies in 2018, we see hierarchy um, surfacing as as, as problematic, if not more so, than actual priest. Uh, I think this is because they're finally, finally um, uh, you know, uh, able to, no longer able to hi hide without any impunity uh, of the law, so. As I know, the example you gave uh, largely in the piece is about the sex abuse scandal and talking about you know, the individual priests and their individual acts of abuse, which certainly horrifying, but then that level beneath the one that I think was really lifted up since that, that 2018 uh, wave was the role of bishops, archbishops uh, in moving people around, that there was something happening at a root level that was different. And was, if you go back to the, the source of this, it was that um, those things were happening there. Um, so uh, just to, again, to, to show that, that difference, how those things go together, I think you say in the piece that hierarchicalism is sort of the, the parent or begets clericalism. Yes. Right. And as a matter of fact, say, say a bishop has some difficulties, he has recourse to a variety of other bishops who are in Rome, who are in different Vatican congregations that he can tap into, who he's known now since he was formed to become a bishop uh, maybe 30, 40 years ago. They have options. They have ways of pursuing, it's a network, it's a culture, and it's a problematic culture if, if they're not working for, to serve the church and the world and, and Jesus Christ, but if they're working to protect themselves, if they're working to advance their careers, if they're working to keep lies um, you know, from being discovered. And, and that's what I'm after. If the church really wants to reform itself, 
Stop aiming at priest. Start your aim for reform on leadership. Uh, that's where the issues are really uh, central. I use as an example, I, I know all these different colleagues of mine who are all for the reform of semina seminaries. I think that's great. But if the bishop is not on board, no matter what reform you have, nothing really will happen. The bishop is the one that the seminarians and the fellow priests take their marching orders from. So I'm interested in us changing the object of our uh, concern for reform in the church from being on the formation of priests to say it should be on the formation of bishops. And we need to finally, now that this new wave of, of, uh, of cases have come through in 2018, which had so many different archbishops, bishops, and cardinals um, exposed, that now we can see that as a matter of fact, the cause of the problem is more uh, found in the culture uh, that I think is toxic with, within the hierarchy. So I guess, and I think a lot about you know, reforming seminaries and in the Jesuit world, there's all the talk of what's going into Jesuit formation, which is a long yeah. period of time. Um, aren't those priests becoming bishops ultimately? Or are you saying that no. because so often that they are uh, targeted from a young age and are sent to, to Rome into these national colleges, that that's kind of a, it's maybe in that seminary formation or looking at what we do with that, you know, those who are picked out from a, a young age. Why wouldn't reforming the seminaries ultimately give us um, reformed hierarchy? You have to aim at the hierarchy. The, the, when people talk about the reform of seminaries, you're talking about a group of people in, in say, New York who are aiming to reform the seminary in New York. Yeah, fine. That's wonderful. But you're never going to change the church if you're not addressing where bishops are formed. Most priests do not become bishops. About two, three, maybe four percent become bishops. The other 96 percent are just, you know, your average Joe working in a parish or working in a diocese trying to serve the people of God. Some of them have been problematic. Some of them are a bunch of whiny, uh, self-aggrandizing uh, petty people. We call them clericalists. Uh, we use the frame clericalism. But within the hierarchy, it's a much more problematic group uh, because they have power, authority, they have options, they have ways of protecting themselves. And in a way, they set the pattern and they are the model for why there are those involved in clericalism. It's hierarchicalism. It's a culture of people who are not trained in their own geographic locality, but rather in Rome, in the many, many different colleges that are there where they end up developing networks that will be with them for the next 40, 50 years of their lives. So in the piece, you say you don't have enough space to kind of talk about how you might combat hierarchicalism. Uh, maybe we could do that now. I'm curious for you, are there examples of, so there's the vicious culture, is there a virtuous culture that you've seen? What is an example uh, in a particular context that we could see, oh, this is how this is kind of meant to be set up? Do you look at the leadership of Pope Francis as an example of that in some ways? Uh, oh, yeah, curious. I think that, Fran I would love Francis to start using the word hierarchicalism. I'm hoping with this article it catches his eye. 
Um, I do think, because he, he uses the term clericalism, but most people, whenever they talk about it, they start talking about the reform of seminaries. No one is talking about the reform of our episcopacy. I've gone through all the literature. They, they will say clericalism also refers to bishops. Yeah, thank you very much. It doesn't address, it, it doesn't address, you know, what is it in the Wizard of Oz? Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. It pays no attention to the man behind the curtain. And that is the hierarchy. And, and in many instances, there are really great, uh, great, uh, bishops and great, um, cardinals and the great popes. But there's also a culture, I think, that, that emerges that, um, actually is more into control, more into authority, more into power and more into serving itself. So I think what we need to do is we need to say, what are the models? Uh, of good Episcopal leadership. Uh, who can we use? I, I don't think it's without, um, you know, it, it should be surprising that as a matter of fact, Francis's own, I think, very impressive style is rejected by many of the hierarchy. I don't think that they're doing that as an individual act. I'm saying that's hierarchicalism. So in my article, I try to say that it's not only about sexual abuse, it's also about, say, Pope Francis talking about Amoris Laetitia. Can we think of a new form of, or new way of providing ministry to married couples? Wouldn't that be really good? And I've checked, I've, I've gone onto the websites of every archbishop in the United States to see how many people actually show any support of of Amoris Laetitia, of this new model of accompanying married couples. And, you know, you find maybe 20% of our episcopacy, uh, at least in the, in the upper level of the hierarchy, all of our eight, uh, 28 archbishop, uh, archdioceses, the archbishops there, that there's only 20% who show any interest in Amoris Laetitia. This is a problem. So I think that Francis is a great model, but the issue with vice is if you don't address it, it just continues to move unnoticed. Like sin, sin is never, sin, sin functions best because it's hidden. You know, like today's uh, gospel reading is Matthew 25. The goats say, when didn't we feed the hungry? When didn't we clothe the naked? It's all hidden. They don't, they don't even know they're, they're doing it. The problem with a vicious culture is it's hidden. And until it's identified, it's not able to be addressed. Right now, we have the identification of a good model, Pope Francis. But what we're not acknowledging is the vicious culture that repudiates the leadership of that model. And that's what I'm trying to do. It's a yin and yang. I think there are good models out there. I think the reason why they're not being heard is because of the vicious culture that inhibits it. So is it too late to work with current bishops, though? I just wonder, like thinking of people who get to be that age and are pretty set in their ways. No, I don't think so. I, I actually, I'm finding, like when I go on the issue of Amoris Laetitia, I'll have any number of bishops say, hey, Jim, um, what could I do to do something like, I just don't know how to do that or something. There are plenty of people, I think, that are trying to figure out where they should be. Um, they, they may not be the strongest bishops in the world, but they may be the more honest ones. And, and what's really nice is to watch how they're trying to figure out where they can stand. Um, I think that we need to work that out. I think that the Trump presidency in the United States 
really influenced our hierarchy uh, to say, I, I think that we can stay with him because he'll be able to grant us certain prerogatives that another type of political character couldn't. I think that their symmetry with him was an indication of, you know, where they're storing their goods. So I'm not sure if this you would think of uh, in terms of a potential other way of proceeding. Uh, it's right now the, in the church, we're engaged in this long synod process. We've had a couple of episodes on synodality with uh, Sister Natalie Beckar in the, at the Vatican and with uh, Father James Hanvey, a Jesuit in, in Rome, talking about synodality, which seems is a very different way, maybe the polar opposite way of hierarchicalism in terms of, right. of seeing yourself as journeying together. And the question for for me then though often is like okay so if synodality is about sharing leadership with lay people um sharing leadership with with women not lording over but being there with you know smelling as the sheep smell uh being on the ground and serving the church as you've talked about um that is you know a beautiful model but also kind of almost dependent too on a bishop deciding to do that just because we have so we have so closely tied uh power to ordination and you could imagine a new pope coming in and saying yeah that whole synodality thing i don't really care about that or a bishop saying that and we see that happening in the u.s certainly um and so it it doesn't have teeth behind it because it is it's kind of an optional thing so what do you think about synodality and is that a potential is that another way is that a valuable thing to be um, reflecting on as a church yeah i think I, years ago, when Amoris Laetitia came out, I was asked to give a paper in Rome on, on discernment. And um, I used synodality as a model of discernment, and I based it on Acts 15. I think that the gathering in Acts 15 and the, uh, the, the way that the early church tried to figure out how they were related to Judaism and how they were related to the kosher laws, what we today call kosher laws and the rest, that they were able to work that out in, in what today we would call a synod. So I was very interested in trying to show that, as a matter of fact, this process is, is an ancient one and one that really fits with the church. I think, I think that, I think you've named those something that uh, would be helpful. And I think that's that with Pope Francis, he puts out these ideas. He puts out a variety of different options for getting the discussion going. But what we're, we have to be looking for are what are the structures that, that can be in place that can move us forward. For instance, I, I ask any number of people, what indication do we see of the men that he's made as bishops over these you know, years of his papacy? Um, do, we, do we identify them as, as we were able to do with the papacy of, say, Pope John Paul, uh, St. John Paul II, how he was able to uh, define his hierarchy by the men he appointed. Um, I think that there's some ambiguity there. So there's a certain way that the Pope presents ideas, but one wants to know how is he developing structures. I think the one structure that he's developed is synodality. But there are other structures like, you know, what does he do with the congregation of bishops and how does he make sure that that pipeline is a is one that's made up of really talented men who are disposed to synodality. I think that's one of the things that I'm asking for us to look at um, and, and to say about his papacy, what is he doing constructively to make sure that his legacy endures? I think in a way he resists things like that. 
I'm not too sure whether or not that, that is virtuous or not, uh, but I'm not going to go down that path. Well, the the piece is very thought provoking, and it will link to that, and hopefully, um, people can can see it and then pick up that uh, that next step of okay. So, what are some ways that we uh, we can pursue this reform? Uh, but again, I, I found it a, a way of re- kind of reframing again that word like clericalism that's so easy just to smack on anything you don't like uh, in the in the church. So, uh, I, I appreciated that. Um, I, I want to turn now to another topic. So, in in the news, of course, is the the war in Ukraine, Russia's uh, in invasion of Ukraine, which would bring up all kinds of questions for theological ethicists. Um, And so I've just, for you, just been uh, interested as you've watched that, what what has caught your attention? Well, here I teach at Boston College and we have um, four uh, Ukrainian students uh, and I'm the vice provost for global engagement. So I asked the person who's in charge of all visas here, how many Ukrainian students do we have? And she said, well, we have four, but we also have a fifth who's a scholar. And I said, okay. So we're having a luncheon with them tomorrow just to see how they're doing and talk with them. But then I said, well, what about the Russian students? Um, I, as an American, uh, I know that my experience when I was overseas uh, studying at the Gregorian in Rome for five years, um, that I know that when my country got involved in any number of things, say, For instance, the bombing of Libya, I have to tell you that as an American in Italy, when Gaddafi sent missiles to Lampedusa, it was not a comfortable time to be an American in Rome. And um, so I decided to write to them. And uh, there's 10 of them here uh, on the campus. And interestingly, they've been writing to me, too, about um, their deep regrets about what's happening in their country and how embarrassed they are about it and how problematic. Not all, uh, but... That's what some of them have said. I think this is really significant. I think, I think that one thing that we can do, especially those of us who are educators, is to reach out to the Ukrainians and Russians in our schools, because there's plenty of them in this country right now. And they represent the future, uh, not, not just the, the, the present. I think that for, for the rest of us, though, I think that, that what we've been seeing is a show of resistance. I think that uh, Zelensky, the president, has shown enormous courage, uh, enormous resiliency, and an enormous sense of justice and patriotism in the good sense of that word. And he has become, if you will, a model for the rest of the world as to, to uh, unite behind, if you will. Um, I think that this is formidable. I think most of us are anxious about uh, 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 the head of Russia, Putin, and whether or not he's actually um, how, 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 how capable he actually is right now. There's been all sorts of questions about his, his capacity of leadership and how he seems to be deeply problematic. And what do you do with that when you're afraid of what he has in terms of his stockpiles and, and, and things like that? So you see this prudence as to what is the right way, but where the basic interest is to try to resist and protect uh, those who are uh, stranded in the Ukraine. I'm also involved in a network of Catholic universities that we see in, there's a Catholic university in, um, in Liev, uh, Leif, um, and, and that Catholic university in Leif has really been um, uh, offering a, a pathway of networking 
um, for their students, but also for education in that country as it faces this uh, turmoil. So I think one of the main things I would say is that we need to pay attention not to our resources only, but to their resources as well, and to see how we can support those resources that they have. Uh, whether it's in their resistance, whether it's in their educational structures or their healthcare structures, so that they can get through this ordeal. So your Jesuit brother, uh, Father Tom Reese, put out a piece recently uh, via Religion News Service that quoted and interviewed a number of different uh, Catholic ethicists thinking about um, how do we respond to even to Ukraine's response as people who are either pacifists or would be in support of uh, per perhaps wars that would qualify as just wars and there are a number of voices there saying like to fight back you know even in, de in defense is, is still is problematic uh and was some voices urging nonviolent resistance others saying hey like you have to kind of this is an existential threat here uh where you have to respond uh in these ways how are you thinking of this as an ethicist looking at that um I'm just curious, what is the, there's no easy answer there, but um, what, so, what do you think? So as a matter of fact, this is fascinating. My article, uh, Hierarchicalism, was one of three that appears in the March issue of Theological Studies. Every year for the past 70 years in the March issue of Theological Studies, um, there is what we call the moral note. And the moral note is basically to say, what do you think are the t main issues that we're, we need to face? I'm in charge of those moral notes. I have been for the past 18 years. Uh, Dick McCormick was my famous predecessor who, who did them. Uh, but I've just assigned one major article for uh, next March, and that is the Ukraine. And, and it's precisely on what you're raising, but it's bigger issues. It's not just about just war. It's about the use of sanctions. It's about refugees. It's about resistance. Um, it's about the use of resources. The, the Ukraine case has, has opened up because uh, there's a legitimacy that's emerging for war here that we haven't seen in, the, in a long time. Some local cultures may have experienced uh, that the use of force was legitimate, but the Ukraine has captured our imagination. I think Putin versus Zelensky has also helped us to look at this again. So this this assignment that I've I'm, I'm, I've I've gone to one person, I've now gone to a second. If he doesn't come through, I'm going to a third. But this is to charge ethicists to look at whether or not the just war tradition, whether or not the question of pacifism, whether or not the question of the use of sanctions, um, what, you know, uh, civilian immunity, all these different issues are now up uh, into consideration in a way that has not in recent times been so exposed. So I do think this is a critical time for us to look at how do we negotiate uh, questions like this, which is basically an overthrow of a legitimate uh, government. So one of your lines, which uh, you've used in books and articles that I uh, have used in my own talks and have attributed to you, but have I find just so compelling is your definition of mercy, which is the um, the willingness to enter into the chaos of another. And I've been thinking about that because we're seeing chaos right now, but I am a world away from that chaos and can, you know, maybe send a donation. I can pray. I can put up a picture of Ukrainian flag. Uh, 
on social media. I'm just curious for you in something like that, a geo, like a geopolitical situation like that that is grabbing our attention. Uh, how does one practice mercy uh, in that context, sitting here where you and I are, um, when we can't f- actually physically, tangibly enter that chaos? It's it's curious what you've just said. It it reminds me of a of an essay I read in 1976, um, where a theologian in the Dominican Republic wrote for Jesuit studies an article where he said, you know, sometimes you people in the global north think that you need to help us in the global south, but maybe what you need to do is to practice a little bit more justice and mercy in your own culture so that it's more present in the world. So the first thing that comes to my mind is this insight that we need more mercy in the world. Uh, and, and God knows we need more mercy in this country. Um, what, what we see instead is an insistence in people's being right on different matters. So it strikes me that the first thing is bringing mercy into the world. Um, that insight of making the kingdom to be more capable of, of being present uh, in our time. But the second is, I, I think all of us, you know, we may not be uh, near to the Ukraine, but we are professionals. Um, I, I woke up this morning where a group of uh, people at different universities that we're connected with are wondering, what's our relationship to Jesuit Refugee Service? Here at Boston College, we have a particular MOU with the Jesuit Refugee Service. It's a very special one that we have. We're involved in four or five of their projects. Now we want to know what can we do about the Ukraine. I think that many of us, like us reaching out to our own students um, on our campus, as a matter of fact, do know people that we can concretely and specifically respond to. I dare say that anybody who lives in a metropolitan area uh, knows of Ukrainians or Russians who live there and that the opportunity for trying to do something. Uh, I saw on Facebook the other day uh, uh, 11 places in New York where you can support Ukrainian businesses. Um, it's a more, it's a greater mindfulness of how proximate our world really is. Um, and I think that, you know, supporting and paying attention to that is really important. I do think, though, this issue of praying, I think similarly, this issue of reading about and being attentive to and trying to cultivate within oneself or one's family or one's household a greater sensitivity to the plight of the people in the Ukraine. I think when you open up the New York Times this morning and see a family uh, of five who've been blown to bits um, right there on the front page, that, that, though, that we should not take our gaze away from that. I think that we should look at this as emblematic of the world that we live in. And that if we want to know what purpose we should have as Christian disciples, it should be that we're attentive to those in need. And attentive to those in need is, is, is all around us. Uh, but I do think that the Ukrainian crisis is making us see what humans are capable of, both in their greatness and resistance here, and also in their viciousness, in their attacks on others. Before I uh, let you go, um, Father Jim, you had mentioned uh, to me before we started recording that uh, you have a book on the history of theological ethics coming out uh, in, in June. 
Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and that project, so something that people can look out for in the next few months. Yeah, uh, two two things. If I so um, my book on the history, nobody really does a history of theological ethics. Who's going to read it? Uh, that's one thing, you know. But as a matter of fact, um, it it starts with the Gospels and it ends with Pope Francis. But it's a big book. And uh, uh, a good friend of mine, John O'Malley, I asked him to do a blurb and he liked it. So I was relieved. Um, and it's coming out, as I said, in May, May or June with Paulus Press. The one thing I was really interested in was previous books on, on the history of moral theology focus in saying that we were really obsessed about sin that the sin manuals, the confessional manuals, went on from the 6th century until the uh, 19th century, and that it was always about sin, 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 sin. But, you know, f further investigations helped us to see that the, the manuals, these penitential manuals from the 5th and 6th century from, from Ireland and then England and Scotland and then later on Northern Europe, that all of them were really about how monks were hearing the confessions of other monks who were actually looking for a life of discipleship. It was spiritual direction. And they were going on about how they were trying to follow the Lord. And wherever they found that there were moments of failure, they wanted to confess and acknowledge that. Uh, what I found is that the history of moral theology is more about following Christ than about confessing sins. In other words, it was more about moving forward and doing something rather than being caught up in your own sinfulness. Uh, I think that Christ died so that we would be freed from our sins, so that we could grow on pathways of holiness. And so I, I basically have as a subtext, what are the pathways of holiness that ha helped us to understand better what's being asked of us today? Um, I use as an example, a 17th, 18th century figure, Alphonsus Liguori. Liguori was a fascinating figure. He f founded the Redemptorists. He's down in Naples. He formed all these different communities where he worked with the poorest of the poor. And then he also um, managed to work with those who were really uh, suffering. So he worked as a, he was, he was a chaplain to those who were condemned to death. He actually shepherded them to the gallows as they were executed. He, he worked with them and their families to offer them all sorts of support. He also worked with people who were infected with syphilis. He was a big member of an organization called the Confraternity of Divine Love. It was the Confraternita del Divino Amore. And he worked with them. He worked with all sorts of very marginalized people. And in that, he became a very good ethicist. He became somebody who could appreciate how it is that we want to call everybody to uh, greatness. When we see Pope Francis talking about a new way of recognizing what the moral pathway is, he, he's inverted something. In the past, we, function, we, we talked about, you know, uh, what's the uh, lesser evil. He's interested in what's the possible good. Instead of saying that this is the, this is the least evil way to pursue, he's saying, no, why don't we ask what could be the better way to pursue? That may be more compromise. It may have more problems, but it is putting us on, I think, a pathway to holiness. So I think my, my book is trying to show where were their pathways of holiness 
that actually informed our lives so that we would be more upright disciples of Christ. Great. Well, I look forward to reading that, to go from the Gospels to Pope Francis. That's a lot of ground to cover, um, but this should be a fun survey to dig into when that yeah. comes out. So, uh, well, thank, thank you, you so much for taking the, the time out of your busy schedule uh, to chat, and I really enjoyed it. And uh, good luck to you the rest of your uh, semester. And uh, yeah, thank you again. Thank you, Mike. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>